What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy podcast, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling. I don't know if you can tell, Midnight Myth listeners, but I am very excited to be back for another Midnight Myth. You know, it's 2020, it's mid-August, little past mid-August, summer is almost up, we're still maintaining COVID-19 is ravaging America. Wherever you're listening, I hope you're safe. I hope you are well. I hope you are finding whatever joy and sanity you can find, however you can find it. And most importantly, I hope you are COVID-free and just generally unhappiness. Uh, May it never touch you, dear Midnight Myth listeners. Long story, now long, We are back with another Midnight Myth episode. We are going to be tackling a classic piece of pop culture, something that has shaped and changed not only cinema, it has ignited fears, it has ignited imaginations, it has been a focal point for many of our lives. It is, without a doubt, one of the true great works of modern cinema ever made, a smash hit phenomenon. We are going to be talking about. Da-dum. Da-dum. We are talking Jaws, the fantastic movie directed by Steven Spielberg. Um, when did it come out again? I'm drawing a blank. 75. 1975. How about that? The movie is older than I am, and I can't wait to talk about it. At the age of 19, I moved to a barrier island, and I lived there with my family until I was 21, and then I moved off the island. My parents still live on the island, so anytime I go to visit my folks, I am visiting a beach resort community island that has a summer season. This island has had shark attacks in its past. It is a very popular island because of its aggressive waves, A lot of surfers like to go there. In particular, our summer season is the uh, winter season in Australia. So a lot of Australian immigrants come for the summer to stay where I used to live, my parents still live, so that they can surf year-round. And this movie hits all kinds of home to me because there are islanders and there are not islanders. 
And I was a newcomer to an island, much in the way the main character of this movie is a newcomer to the island. And I just adore this movie. I can't wait to discuss all of the different thoughts that I've had, all the different feelings that I've had in relations to Jaws. And I think Jaws is maybe the perfect movie for now. Yeah, the the very reason that we wanted to talk about Jaws uh, on the podcast right now is because it has sort of come right back into the pop culture parlance uh, as people compare uh, varying uh, reactions and responses to the current public health crisis to the way people reacted to shark attacks on Amity Island. Uh, you know, we clearly can see uh, people weighing in the public sphere uh, what is most important, the preservation of lives, the preservation of welfare and health, or the preservation of economic dollars, which translate in many cases to economic welfare and public health. Uh, there is a constant tug and pull between differing priorities in our current events as there is in Jaws. Uh, so the mayor of Jaws, Mayor Vaughn, gets evoked a lot when we talk about coronavirus and the pandemic response. Uh, so it definitely felt like we had to talk about Jaws, but I'll let you in on a little secret. This was my first time seeing Jaws, and wow, uh, I don't know how I made it this far in life without doing it. I went to film school, uh, so I have like studied the shots. I know how to do that beach shot, um, and I have like read a lot about the screenplay, but never actually seen it. So uh, it was needless to say, super like fun and thrilling and terrifying to watch for the first time. Our poor cats were like lounging on our laps, having like a lovely time. And then all of a sudden we were both screaming and they like leapt a thousand feet into the air and ran upstairs. So uh, apologies to our cats, Claudius and Charlemagne, but what an what is an experience what an incredible cinematic experience i know that uh when this came out uh it actually caused at least one diagnosed case of cinematic neurosis and i can totally understand and identify with that it evokes so much emotion and anxiety and tension uh and is just a masterful masterful film so i'm super excited to talk about it and it is a bloody PG, man. Ooh. It predates the PG-13 rating. Ooh. Like, this movie is really not a kid's movie. And I saw it when I was very, very young. I don't remember the exact age I was when I first saw Jaws, but I was not old. I saw it, and I was afraid to go in the water for many years. My family would take me to the beach, and I would refuse to swim, and I said, why don't you want to swim? I said, there are way too many sharks out there. Yeah, I mean, For I'm not going swimming the rest of the summer. Many, many years. In fact, it was so bad that my mom and my dad, they bought me a book about sharks so I could learn about sharks. And it was like a kid-friendly book about sharks to make me less afraid so I would actually go into the ocean and swim. So once I learned a little bit about sharks and once they had stopped being this monster as it was in the movie Jaws, I was finally able to enjoy swimming in the ocean because I was just too afraid because Jaws scared me that much. You're like a tiny composite between Martin Brody and Matt Hooper there. Like once you learned a little bit more about the actual sharks themselves, you weren't as afraid of the water. Absolutely. Very cool. 
So we have a lot to get into. We're going to roll up our sleeves and get into it. Uh, But first, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, absolutely. We uh, here at The Midnight Myth are stuck inside and very bored and would love to hear from you. So if you are, uh, you know, also stuck inside and bored and want to chat, please hit us up on social media. We are at The Midnight Myth on Twitter. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. Uh, We also have a website, MidnightMyth.com, where you can get lots of more information Uh, You can get a link to our merch store if you want to stock up on Midnight Myth merch. And you can get a link to our Patreon, which is where you can support us for a low monthly donation and get perks from the podcast. And today, we have a special shout out and thank you to our newest Patreon supporter. So thank you, Leslie, for joining our Patreon. We are so, so happy to have you. Leslie is the host of Stuck on Arrakis, which is a podcast that covers uh, like first-time reads of popular fantasy and sci-fi series. And currently it's doing Wheel of Time by Robert Jordan, which is like the huge, massive, uh, you know, like world spanning fantasy series that they are making into a TV show somewhere, Amazon or somewhere. That's going to be the next Game of Thrones. You're, you're looking at me like I know the answer. I do not. But it's been on my reading list forever. Definitely check out Leslie's podcast, Stuck on Arrakis, if you can. Uh, you can find it pretty much anywhere podcasts are found. Yeah, and Leslie suggested that we do a Q&A style episode oh, or, yeah. or thing like that. So I'm just going to throw this out there, Midnight Myth listeners. If you want a like, Q&A style episode, we could do like a message board where you can send us messages. Um, we would do it live on Twitter, like whatever you want to do. I'm totally game for that. Yeah, and anytime send us your questions or your thoughts like I said, on Twitter or at MidnightMyth.com. There's a contact form and we'll get that in an email. Um, So we would love to hear whatever questions you have or whatever thoughts you have about the podcast. Oh, big announcement. Wheel of Ka, Steve and I have scheduled our episode on Salem's Lot. Yay, finally. We're recording it next week, so it might need like a week or two to be mixed down until it can get uh, posted up. So you should be seeing that soon. If you haven't read Stephen King's Salem Lot, please read it now. We'll be discussing the whole book in one episode. So we have a lot to get to. We're really excited. Thank you, fans, for your patience. Things have been nuts. You know, there's a pandemic, and my wife is pregnant, and and our AC broke, and all of these things have gotten in the way of us actually doing the Wheel of Ka episode, but it's now on the books, and... Unless there is some crazy oh, act God, of God, don't say it. Don't even we're say We're going it. to record a Wheel of Ka episode, so I'm really excited about that. I am too. I'm reading Salem's Lot now to get caught up so that I can listen and uh, understand everything that's going on. And I'm having the time of my life reading that book, so uh, definitely recommend it if you haven't checked it out or haven't read it in a while. All right, shall we recap Jaws? Briefest of brief yeah, recaps? absolutely. So Jaws features a character, Police Chief Brody at Amity, Amity Island, and it starts when a young girl gets eaten by a shark and her body is washed ashore. The chief then decides that he is going to close the beaches. This is days before July 4th, the kickoff of the summer season and the opportunity for Amity Island to earn all of that sweet tourist cash. This obviously sends ripples through the community and the mayor convinces him to not close the beaches and that, in fact, it wasn't actually a shark that killed the young girl. In fact, it was a boating accident. After this, the beaches are open following the tragic death of not only a dog named Pippin, which I had completely forgotten, and a young boy get eaten alive by this killer shark. 
They now have decided that they do have to close the beaches until the shark is caught. There's a $3,000 bounty, so every would-be fisherman is out there trying to kill this shark and then enter in from the Oceanographic Institute, a character by the name of... uh, Matt Hooper. Hooper. I almost said Hopper. Thank you. Hooper. Hooper and Chief Brody end up having a kinship and they become friends very quickly, trying to figure out the best way to bring this killer shark in when a bunch of uh, would-be fishermen bring in a gigantic tiger shark, thinking that they have actually killed the shark that was eating all of the people. Hooper suggests that they cut open the belly of the shark to see if it has the body of the boy that was eaten, so they can confirm as he measures this shark's mouth, he says the mouth is not big enough to have done the damage to the young woman that died in the beginning of the movie. Advice which is promptly ignored by the mayor and denied. So instead of just resting on their laurels, uh, Hooper goes with uh, the chief and they end up cutting open the belly of the tiger shark, learning that it's not the actual animal. The beaches get open for 4th of July and a shark then does come and it kills a man on a boat, almost killing Hooper's own son as they're playing in the water. Now they have decided to contract Captain Quint, a local eccentric fisherman who's a little old, he's a little old school as well, for $10,000. So Hooper, Brody, and Quint go out onto the ocean in Quint's boat, and they go hunting for the shark. It does not take them too long to find this beast, and they realize it is a 20-foot-long, pardon me, 25-foot-long great white shark that proceeds to thwart them at every turn, nearly killing Hooper, eating Quint, sinking the ship, and in the last moments, with an aerosol can of compressed air stuck in the mouth of this gigantic sea monster, Brody, finally overcoming his fear of water, shoots the tank and explodes the animal. The final shot is of Brody and Hooper swimming to shore with the last remaining rafts, and Brody saying, you know, I used to hate the water. Can't imagine why. So basically what you're saying, briefest of briefest recap here is shark meets girl, shark meets boy, police chief meets shark, shark meets compressed air, shark go boom. That's my elevator pitch. I mean, that is actually a better recap than mine. So yeah, well done. I totally, it's a love story. Really. It's a romantic comedy. Uh, no, really well done. I think you got a lot of the detail there and it was fantastic. Well, it's your first time seeing Jaws. So you don't necessarily know if it holds up to your memory, but does this movie hold up? We've asked this question every time we dig into you know cinema history, especially with a blockbuster. A lot don't hold up as well as we remember. Does this one hold up to your fresh you know eyes? Well, it holds up to my expectations for sure. Uh, you know, not having seen it before, I'm not comparing it to how I perceived it as a young person, but I am comparing it to how much it's been talked up, uh, how many screenwriting books it's in, how many people reference it as a great classic of cinema. And I'm like, yeah, it, it, it's all of those things. And it's also just a darn good time to watch. Uh, you know, there are times when you'll go back and watch something that's a classic and you'll be like, this is great. I don't have the mental capacity for this right now. Or you'll be like, this is great. It's a little bit slow, but I can see why it's so good. This was just like a joy from start to finish. And by a joy, I mean, I was having a good time. I wasn't like enjoying watching little kids get pulverized, but I was really like on the edge of my seat the entire time. Nothing was, um, 
like it was full of surprises and there was nothing that made me cringe or made me go, oh, that doesn't look good. Uh, I was just completely enthralled with it and it felt like a very fresh, exciting cinematic experience. I totally agree with that. I had one note, yeah, one thing that I thought did not age well, and I can't believe I'm going to say this. Uh-oh. John Williams' score. Oh, okay. And here is the thing that I found. And now, the da-dun is perfect. John Williams is one of the greatest writers of music who has ever lived. Iconic themes, yeah. He is the greatest writer of movie scores in, known to me. There are a few close, but there is only one John Williams. And that Jaws dud um, is amazing. However, in the third act, when the heroes are on the boat, the music would often shift from very tense, very dramatic, very suspenseful um, sounds, and then shift into jovial adventure mode. And it like, you know, the jovial adventure mode did not seem to match the suspense that these characters were going through, nor did it match the acting. The characters weren't acting like swashbuckling pirates. I felt like I was listening to the music of Hook in the middle of three men who were both philosophically, morally on different poles of a triangle, barely hanging on to whatever semblance of a crew that they can, constantly at the verge of tearing each other apart. One of them is pretty much insane from PTSD. And here comes this swashbuckling adventure fun music as they're almost being eaten alive by a shark. And I felt like that was the one thing that I'm like, oh, this music does just not match the acting, the cinematography. And it's the first time I have ever thought that about John Williams. And that would be my one thing that I'm like, yeah, this didn't age very well. Yeah, I actually agree with you. I was kind of cracking jokes at that point because the music was going on these 180s so quickly where it would go from this like triumphant, like we're chasing the shark to like really ominous and oh God, is the shark going to get away from us again? So yeah, I actually, I did think that was a moment where like it could have benefited from a little bit of a lighter touch on John Williams's part. Every time the camera zoomed out and they showed showed them doing a nautical maneuver while they're battling the the shark, it went into adventure, fun, happy music. And I'm like, there's nothing adventure, fun, happy about this. One of these characters is afraid of water. One of these characters is completely insane and wants to kill the shark at all costs, so much so that he'll destroy the radio so they can't rescue for help. The other one is a scientist that's trying to bring some sense of rationality and calm to this. They're all hung over because they've been getting hammered when the shark ended up coming. It's like this music really kind of took me out of it. And that's my one bit of Jaws that I think doesn't age well. Everything else is flawless. And I know I am giving notes to the greatest of great music composers, but it's the one thing in the movie that I didn't totally love the sec this this time watching. And we have heaped a lot of praise on John Williams in the past because we have covered a lot of uh, films that he was involved in. And actually in the last few weeks, we've done a couple of Spielberg movies uh, and we always call out the brilliance of the score. And the irony of this is like, we're calling out one moment in Jaws, whereas it's contrasted with like maybe the like greatest 
um, simplest theme when it comes to tension, the greatest musical theme when it comes to like, what does tension sound like? Well, it sounds like a minor second, just really slowly as a shark is seeing you from below the water. Uh, so again, he's incredible and wonderful. I'm not saying I could have done it better. I, I, I couldn't do it at all, but John Williams, I still love you. Please. I can feel people listening, hating me right now. (laughs) I always take the unpopular opinion. But other than that, I thought the movie, I mean, what can I say? Jaws is a classic. It is one of those movies that spawned an entire, like, spinoff, so many Jaws movies, so many shark movies in general. Oh, my God, yeah. It's an entire genre of film for shark movies you know, some really great, some really silly, but like so many people have tried to reproduce the magic of Jaws. It's that prolific. I would also argue it's one of the reasons so many people know about sharks and so many people are interested in sharks. I don't know if the Discovery Channel would have Shark Week. We wouldn't have Shark Week. We wouldn't have Sharknado. Uh, Two iconic pop culture, uh, you know, tent poles there without this movie. Yeah, so I think it deserves all of the praise that it gets. I think the acting is exceptional in this movie. I think of Steven Spielberg, he always gets good acting. Right? Yeah, yeah. Because he's he's the master. But I think this is one of the most well-acted Steven Spielberg movies that there is, save for maybe like, um, you know, Schindler's List. Right, yeah. No, it it really is quite wonderful. And to see the three actors who play um, Hooper, Brody, and Quint play off each other so powerfully and to, uh, you know, watch characters who are, in general, uh, in opposition to each other, grow into comrades, grow into friends, grow into partners, uh, and then grow into people who would sacrifice themselves for each other is a really cool journey to watch. Uh, from a story perspective, but also the actors, I think, carry it off really, really masterfully. Um, and yeah, it's just a just a wonderful film. Yeah. All right. So it holds up. We agree. Yeah. Let us dive into the analysis piece. Dive in. There oh. are, yes, let's dive in. There are so many different angles we can take with Jaws. I would like to kick this off. I would like for us to kind of dig back into the past And talk about the mythological beats, because I think they're there. There are some major ancient um, storytelling techniques happening within Jaws, within its narrative structure. And I'd love to kick off a conversation about the monstrous. Every society who has ever lived near, by, or relation to any large group body of water, any sea any gigantic lake, any ocean has had some concept of a sea monster. And I'd like to understand Jaws first and foremost as a movie about a sea monster. And I want to think of it as a modern sea monster movie. And so I want to ask you a question. What's the deal with sea monsters? I have been waiting for you to ask me that question for my entire life, Derek. Ever since I said, will you marry me? The next yeah, one and was, I was like, when is he going to ask me what I think about sea monsters? Uh, I, so I'm really into sea monsters. I think they're fantastic uh, and fascinating. And because they have been around for so long in every society that is encountering large bodies of water develops some sort of sea monster 
that really fascinates me. And that's one of the reasons that we started The Midnight Myth was because we were interested in uh, mostly similarities across the stories that we tell and the stories that we have always told. But the other thing about sea monsters is that even though, uh, you know, almost every society has one, there's there's so much variety. There are so many different kinds of sea monsters. There are sea serpents. There are krakens. There are leviathans. There are whale-like creatures. There are mermaids and merpeople. There are giant squids. Like there is so much variety to what is uh, to, to what is possible in this imagination. And the reason for that is that there's so much variety to what comes out of our oceans. Uh, you know, it's 2020. And we think of ourselves as like modern and incredibly advanced, but we still have 80% of our oceans totally uncharted, unmapped, unexplored. And the oceans cover 70% of the earth. So most of what we have on this planet is deep sea and deep sea life. And most of that is a total mystery. Even the things that we have discovered, even the things that we have identified and that you can see in an aquarium are freaking crazy. Like starfish, jellyfish, these things are nuts. Coral, incredible. This like totally other universe that exists side by side with us uh, and that can pose a threat or can just pose a, a huge abyss-like question is uh, something that has been in our consciousness as long as we have been telling stories. So that's a huge reason that I'm interested in sea monsters, and I think it has major implications on the story of Jaws. Yeah, a lot of the theories about why why sea monsters are so prolific, one, you know, ancient people, they could sail. So they would often sail across these large bodies of water. And so there are a few general theories. No one really knows the origin of so many of these different sea monsters, you know, because they are enshrined in myth and legend and not in empirical science the way we enshrine knowledge now. But many of the theories are theory, major theory one, there's an encounter with an actual sea creature and that sea creature then becomes the sea monster. So you're a bunch of, you know, ancient Carthaginians crossing the uh, Aegean Sea and you see a whale for the first time and you perceive this whale as monstrous because you've never seen anything like it before. The other, you know, explanation for sea monsters is floating, um, you know, fauna. So underwater plants that have surfaced. Sure, yeah. uh, Or washed ashore that look strange, which can only be described as bizarre and you called it otherworldly. Well, then it takes on a monstrous form. Another major theory for sea monsters is perils at sea. So people would go out on a sea adventure and not come back. And one of the questions is what happened to them? And generally speaking, the response would be they probably encountered a monster. Another example for sea monsters, there's a ton of theories, so I'm just rattling these off. Another reason for why sea monsters is the experience of harsh weather at sea. So experience of a tsunami or a hurricane or a cyclone at sea is perceived by these sailors, they have survived, but to them they saw a monster, not a thing of weather. The weather takes on the monstrous form. And then lastly is that these are projections of ancient mythological subconscious fears manifested and enshrined into myth. 
And if one were to ask me in a, I'm, I'm not an expert on this subject, but if one were to ask me what I think, I would say it's probably a little bit of everything. Absolutely, yeah. There's a reason a kraken um, takes the form of a gigantic squid or octopus. That's because there are gigantic squid and octopus. Not only are there giant squids, there's also a bigger squid. Oh my God, I'm blanking on its name. I should have wrote it down. Is it the colossal squid? Colossal squid, yes. So there's a giant squid, and then there's a larger one called the colossal squid. I learned that. You don't even have to see one of those. If you just see a tentacle wash up or like you know, that another creature was feasting on and you see like a little piece of it and you can get a sense of that thing's size. How does that not take on a quality of supernatural if you're in the ancient world? Even in the modern world, if you see something like that and you're not prepared for it, it takes on a totally spooky Lovecraftian quality, right? Yeah, and the other another thing about that is there is a phenomena called a globster. And a globster is a carcass that washes ashore that is unidentifiable. So anytime something washes ashore and you don't know what it is, it's called a globster. And one another examples of what people might imagine as a sea monster is a decomposed sea creature that has yet to be discovered or no one has seen decomposed before, washes ashore, and it's completely unknown. It then takes on the, the, the characteristics and the traits of the monstrous. At the core of this is an ancient person trying to reconcile the strange and threatening nature of the natural world. We have a relationship to the natural world that is very regimented. We, I mean us modern people. We have systems that have spent centuries looking at, understanding, and categorizing the natural world. So when we see a phenomenon we don't understand, we have a basis of comparison from the knowledge that we have accumulated before. I mean, technically, things like biology and zoology date back to Aristotle. So that's when we first started categorizing all of the different natural phenomenon. We have uh, discovered pretty much every inch of our globe that we can. You know, so there's very little undiscovered country. And we have a really strong sense of the amazing and diverse creatures that live on this planet. The ancient world doesn't have that. Things such as weather, what causes weather, how does weather happen, totally shrouded in mystery and misunderstanding, and often only described through the supernatural and superstitious. So why did this weather phenomenon happen? Well, we didn't make a proper sacrifice to the proper deity who controls these waters, or there is a monstrous creature that is unappeased that's coming after us, and trying to make sense and put order to a world that is very hostile and threatening, we then see the mythological monsterfication of the natural world. The natural world ceases to become a place of adventure and excitement that we can traverse, that we can learn, and that we can categorize and understand. And it becomes a place that is hostile to our very bodies and ourselves, and one we must be wary of, and one we must be in awe of, And in certain circumstances, one we must make worship and sacrifice to in order to traverse uh, successfully. Yeah, I'll give you a great example of what you're describing here, which comes from Homer's Odyssey of all places. uh, And that's uh, stories about Scylla and Charybdis. Uh, Scylla was a fearsome six-headed monster that lived on one side of a narrow strait. But then on the other side of the narrow strait, there was Charybdis, whose uh, mouth was a whirlpool 
uh, and it was just right across that very narrow channel of water. So if you were one of the unfortunate sailors who had to pass through this strait, you had a choice to make. You could go towards the shoal and you could get devoured by Scylla, or you could go the other direction and go to the other side of the strait and you could get completely torn apart by a whirlpool. So it becomes this sort of idiom between Scylla and Charybdis or between a rock and a hard place. And Odysseus on his journey was one of the people who had to pass through this strait and he was advised to uh, to go towards Scylla instead of Charybdis. So to go towards the monster that lived on the shore because the monster could only eat probably six of his men total and if he got too close to Charybdis, he could lose the entire ship and all of his men. So we see Odysseus, uh, you know, facing down the threat of a sea monster and making the choice to, like, preserve as many lives as possible, which I think has some interesting implications on Jaws. But like you're describing here, Scylla and Charybdis were supposedly located on the Strait of Messina, which is close to, like, Sicily in modern-day Italy, and contemporary cartographers have looked at that natural coastline and have rationalized Scylla and Charybdis not as monsters, but as dangerous natural phenomena. So on one side, you have a very rocky shoal where your boat might get destroyed. And on the other side, you have a natural whirlpool where you might get swallowed up. So it's that kind of rationalization of these dangerous perils that if you place them on a map, you might depict them as monsters and early sailors might be like, okay, stay away from those monsters, but you're actually guiding them away from real peril that is not necessarily supernatural, but is very, very real. Yes, and if you are a society that has little to no literacy, has no standardized cartography or maps, um, how do you communicate where these dangers are? In a more or less universal language. And this is where the mythopoetic thought process comes up with the sea monster. And mythopoetic is a term we've talked about before. In short, it means pre-logical societies. It means describing the world through myth and poetry, rather through rationalism and observation. So you have a place that is known to be dangerous to humans. It must be monstrous. And this is where the symbolism and literalism of mythopoetic society become one. It's not literally a monster, but it is literally monstrous towards people. So why is this place so dangerous? It's because of the monster trying to make sense of a pattern of hostile behavior that otherwise is not able to be made sense of. Otherwise, it's incomprehensible. Why can't you sail here? Why should you not be able to sail here? It's because of these monsters that you have to pass. And I think that is the place where we can begin to understand Jaws. So my question that I'd like to, with our conversation about the sea monsters having been said, how does Jaws utilize the monstrous in this narrative to make it a successful narrative? To answer that question, I'm going to give another example from Greek mythology because I think it gets at the real heart of this, uh, in addition to that example from the Odyssey. Uh, and this is the story of Cassiopeia and Andromeda, and Perseus comes into this one as well. If you've seen Clash of the Titans, you know where I'm going. Um, 
So Cassiopeia was a queen and her daughter Andromeda was really beautiful. And so Cassiopeia brags about how gorgeous her daughter is. She's even more beautiful than the Nereids, who were sea nymphs and I believe daughters of Poseidon. Uh, you don't make claims like that in ancient Greece without getting punished. So Poseidon uh, demanded that she and the kingdom be sacrificed to the sea monster Cetus as punishment. Uh, and Cetus is described variously in different texts, but he's sometimes described very similarly to a magnificently huge shark. So that's very important. Uh, Cetus comes up and tries to devour the kingdom, but of course, Perseus swoops in and at least saves Andromeda. Uh, but this is a perfect example, I think, of human pride causing the attack of a sea monster and the sacrifice in particular of the youth because of misguided adults. That is hugely at the core of what's going on in Jaws here. And it's like you were saying at the beginning, an ancient mythological theme, this uh, sense of human pride and hubris causing punishment. We have uh, a community in Jaws that is comfortable, that is in control of its natural surroundings, uh, people who have lived on the island for their entire lives, extremely calm waters that they feel a sense of ownership over and that they feel, you know, every summer we do this. We make summer dollars. We're a summer town. We've never had trouble before. So nothing could come and threaten us. There is nothing out in these waters that could actually bring us to our knees. So when faced with a threat like a great white shark, this unimaginable sea monster that can like pulverize children in an instant and that can completely bring the town down, they are in shock, they are in denial, uh, and they are in total uh, chaos about what to do because they have been so blinded by a sense of pride, convenience, comfort, and the illusion of dominion. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Oh, wow. I love that. I'd like to add a few things yeah. to, I, I thought that was a brilliant point. And I'd like to add a few things to how this movie employs the narrative devices of the monstrous in order to establish the threat over the dominion. Yeah. Cause I think what you said was perfect, but just a few things that it peppers in there because the movie recognizes that this is for a modern contemporary largely educated, at least high school educated and college educated audience in America. So it couches the monstrous in scientific language. It has the character Brody learning about sharks, reading a book saying lines like no one knows how sharks, how old sharks are. Some might be thousands of years old. Yeah. So it couches this as a very ancient power, something that predates our society, something that could be older than we know, something that is from the ancient world, 
from the time when monsters live. From the depths unknowable in a way. So old we can't even say this thing could be thousands of years old. So that's one way that it does it. Two, the size, the unusual large size of Jaws, making it not just a great white shark, but the largest great white shark ever known to science, makes it a little more monstrous. And then three, the sort of almost vengeful-like personality the shark takes in the third act, where despite having several barrels harpooned to it, several bullet holes placed in it, it seems to be be zeroing in on our heroes with a relentless that you would think the natural world would just leave. It seems to know that it's in a battle with this boat, and instead of being afraid of the battle, it accepts it, and despite being injured, and despite having three barrels trying to get it, get it to the top of the surface, it can submerge at will. It seems to have a supernatural level of strength and intelligence and strategy that you just don't see in normal, like we college-educated, high school-educated Americans, like animals don't do that. You harpoon them, they get weak. This one gets stronger. You scare them, they run away. This one gets angrier. This one seems to know where the boat is at all times, and it seems to know the weaknesses of the boats. So it has a sort of pseudo-intelligence. And then lastly, and I think one of the greatest strengths of this movie and the strength of the monster is a great story about a monster needs the monster hunter. It needs the hero that slays the beast. It needs the, the it needs the Hercules to trap the Hydra. It needs the Thor to uh, wrestle the human gunder. And in this movie, it crafts three monster hunter heroes, all varying degrees of both philosophical, both morally, um, both pragmatically different. You have the scientific sailor in Hooper. You have the old school monster hunter in Quint. And then you have the, I need to overcome my fear to protect my community in the chief. And in these three monster hunters, they come to define everything that is human versus everything that is inhuman in Jaws. Ooh, these are all like fantastic points that you just put out. One thing I'll add to the kind of uh, creation of the monstrous through our title character, this great white shark, uh, is just in the cinematographic techniques. Uh, So we don't see the shark for a little bit. We see a lot of things from the shark's perspective. We see the damage uh, to varying degrees. We see some more graphic killings than others. We might just see a fin. Uh, When we finally start to see the monster, we get little bits at a time. We might just see the mouth. But then by the end, when we're hitting the climax of the story, it's almost like the shark is bigger every time we see almost like it grows in between shots because we see more and more of it and we see it in comparison to the boat or we see it in comparison to chief brody's size we can actually start to uh materialize what this actual monster looks like and how freaking huge it is uh so i think that's just another aspect of how it drives home this almost supernatural quality of this creature But then on the subject of these uh, three monster hunters, we have these three archetypes. Uh, We have the stalwart police chief who is trying to overcome his fear. We have the expert scientist. And then we have 
uh, Quint, who is very much the Captain Ahab. Uh, you know, we talked about Moby Dick a lot with Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan, and this is another movie that is informed quite a lot by Moby Dick, in particular with this character, this single-minded, uh, you know, poetic vision of a sea captain who does not even seem real. He seems a little bit like a cartoon, like the sea captain from The Simpsons. Um, but as we get to know him a little bit more, as we get to learn about his backstory, about why he hates sharks, about why he hangs the jaws of sharks on his boat, the orca, which is named after the only natural enemy of the shark, the killer whale, uh, we start to see this vulnerability and we start to see what is driving the like almost mad, I mean, not almost, like he's genuinely a mad sea captain and what is driving this single-minded obsession for him. And I think uh, the opposition between these characters does come back to hubris, does come back to each of their relationship to the sea each of their relationship to their pride in this particular endeavor. And both Hooper and Brody have a sense of awe, have a sense of respect, uh, and have a sense of uh, humility before the greatness that is the ocean that allows them to get out of this more or less unscathed. Whereas Quint, who is driven by revenge, who is driven by this kind of mad obsession with getting back at the sharks that targeted him unfairly during the war, he's not able to get out alive because he hangs the jaws of sharks, because he demands $10,000 to hunt a shark that there's no way he could possibly lose. Uh, he, he believes he has some sort of power over the hugeness that is this monster and the hugeness that is the sea. And back on land, that corresponds to Mayor Vaughn, too, who has the same sense of, I control this. I say the beaches are open. They're open. There's no shark. There's no shark because the waters are calm, because this is my island, because we need the money. And while Mayor Vaughn doesn't get devoured by anybody, he does end up in disgrace at the end. So Vaughn and Quint aren't able to let go of this hubris, aren't able to let go of this pride, they suffer a tragic fall, whereas Brody and Hooper, who have a sense of humility, even Brody, that's fear, but that's like a natural, genuine fear that you probably should have a little bit of when you look at the ocean. You should be a little bit afraid. Uh, he's able to overcome it and feel um, kind of the, the power and the beauty and the majesty of the ocean, but he still feels respect for it. Yeah, I love where you're going there. So... We've talked about a few amazing mythological monsters, and I'd like to point out some of their monster hunters. So we've talked about Odysseus, we've talked about Perseus, and we've mentioned Thor. Three heroes, all who had to battle sea monsters at some point, and all who overcame the sea monsters. And now, from a contemporary lens, we could understand all three of those heroes as fundamentally flawed in particular when we think of our moral sensibilities versus the moral actions they did in their stories, in the time, these heroes were not flawed. And it is a part of the ancient hero and the medieval hero is that they are themselves almost perfect beings, that they don't have to overcome flaws, they have to overcome obstacles. And those obstacles are the monsters. Flash forward to now, we expect different things from our heroes. 
our heroes are no longer divine beings in Asgard or heroes of the Trojan War or have the lineage of Zeus and the blood of a deity running through their veins. They're now flesh and blood ordinary people. And we, they can't just overcome the monster. They have to overcome their flaws. And in this, in the three heroes that we have here, we have Quint, who his flaw is that he is unable to see the natural world as unmonstrous. To him, it's all monsters, and it's his to command and to destroy. Yeah. His job, he is the monster hunter. And in the ancient world, this would be enough that he is just great at killing monsters and relishes his ability to do it. And that would be the hero that we'd have. They'd kill monsters. They'd go back if it was Norse to a hall and drink mead and sing songs about his glory. But we want more from our heroes. So then his problem is since he can only see Jaws as a monster and not as an animal, he's unable to recognize technology as something that can help him. And he almost does and when he goes and he looks at Hooper and says, so do you have some ways that you might be able to kill him? Almost admitting, yeah, my old school ways aren't working. But in the end, when it's the thickest, what does he do? He grabs a baseball bat. He finds a piece of technology in a two-way radio and he smashes it, dooming the men to fight the monster on their own with their wits or the monsters and that's it. Juxtaposed to Hooper who doesn't see Jaws as a monster at all. He, in fact, has a great scene where he describes what Jaws is, and he calls it an evolutionary machine that only knows how to hunt its territory and will hunt its territory till the food supply is run out. There is a very easy calculus. There's two ways that you can solve this problem using the tools of science. Stop the food supply, and it'll move on, or kill the shark recognizing that the mayor will not allow the food supply to be stopped. The mayor will always choose to allow swimmers, which is to say to allow revenue for the town over the shark, over the, uh, the fear of the shark. He makes a decision to then work with Brody and Quint to kill the shark, not because he wants to kill the shark, not because he thinks the shark deserves to die. After all, to Hooper, the shark is only doing what the machine was biologically engineered to do. It's this is the only way to solve the problem. Then the character that is within the middle, the top of the triangle of these three is Brody. Brody, who hates the water, who doesn't care about sharks at all, who's only, you know, contracting the scientist because he needs the advice of the scientist, who then hires, goes out on a limb to hire the monster hunter because he's just like, we have only one option left. The mayor has left us with only one thing to do, which is hunt and kill the shark. He is now the glue that puts these other two characters together. And then one, it's a great recipe for drama and it allows our heroes to have something that they need to overcome. Because these heroes are flawed, they have to overcome them. And this is what we expect of the modern hero. Quint's downfall is that he can't overcome his flaw. He comes close to, but he can't. But Brody does. He conquers his fear of the ocean. He conquers his fear of the water. And he slays the beast and returns home, having conquered his fear of the wild, 
And he returns home with who? His new best friend. His new Enkidu. If you are familiar with the story of Gilgamesh, Enkidu was created by the gods to check the unregulated power of Gilgamesh. Enkidu was nature manifest into a man. Hooper is science manifest into a man. And they return home together in peace. I love all of that. That's really, really well said. And Brody is able to conquer the shark using a combination of Hooper's ingenuity and scientific mind and um, and Quint's rugged resourcefulness, as well as his own inner strength that he has mustered through being on this journey. You know, he's shooting the compressed air tank that wouldn't be on the boat if they didn't have Hooper. And they wouldn't be on this boat if Quint hadn't invited them onto the Orca. So it is, uh, you know, it's, he's putting all of the strengths of these characters together to become the strongest version of himself. And to Quint's credit, he goes down swinging, basically in hand-to-hand combat with a great white shark. And I don't think there's any better way for that character to go. It's really quite poetic. But we know at the end of this that Brody isn't going to arrive on shore and suddenly put his hands on his hips and say, I'm the monster slayer, I'll kill any shark. Uh, I cannot be defeated, I'm invincible. He's going to go back and he's going to still be the caring and compassionate and uh, rational chief that he is. He's going to continue to fight for what's good for his community, whether or not that is the most uh, revenue-producing option. And he is going to go swimming every summer, but he's not going to get cocky. He's not going to be prideful about it. Yeah, he returns home and lets the beaches be open. Yeah. And goes back to being a chief, dealing with, uh, you know, the local kids karate chopping a neighbor's fence. And all of these other petty things that all of the citizens are asking him to address is going to go back to doing that. Yeah, I totally agree. Let us, we have talked the mythology of Jaws now for nearly this whole episode. And this was not where we thought this episode would go. This is not what we were planning to talk about. So I'd like to pivot. Yeah, yeah, please. Transitions. So let's transition to the politics, or I should say the morality of Jaws. Because at the core of Jaws, you have characters arguing for different versions of a concept called the greater good. This is something that we have discussed at length in other episodes. It's something that many of you may be familiar with. But it is a concept that is very ancient. And it says that there are the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. We talked about this in the uh, Star Trek episode. How could you not? Because Spock literally says that. There's also a moral philosophy that kind of um, details what this means in more specific terms called utilitarianism, something that we've also discussed in the podcast before. And if you've seen this show, The Good Place, and if you're listening to The Midnight Myth, you've probably seen The Good Place. Um, You understand a little bit about this. But the idea is that you have to maximize the most amount of happiness for the most amount of people. Anyone that works in public policy is inherently a utilitarian to some degree. There are sacrifices in every every type of public policy. Someone inevitably gets hurt. And you're trying to minimize the amount of hurt and maximize the amount, in utilitarian terms, pleasure. But we can understand pleasure as general social wealth and social happiness, social well-being, social... um, public health, et cetera. These are the pleasures that we are trying to maximize when we approach public policy with a utilitarian frame of reference. 
and we have two characters arguing for a different greater good. Character one is the chief when the first shark attack happens that says the greater good is to not allow people on the beaches because there is a shark that could kill them out there and any death is too many, so let's shut the beaches down. Then there is the mayor, and the mayor argues that the greater good is to have tourists into the community to allow them to swim so that they can spend money here. And that's the greater good. And if a shark does end up eating someone, well, it's okay if we get all of this revenue coming in. Which is life-sustaining revenue, you know, to play a little bit of devil's advocate on the mayor's side. And I'm sorry that I'm doing this, but he is making an argument that like, our community needs these dollars to thrive. We would all starve if we didn't have them. Speaking from someone who grew up or didn't grow up, but moved at the age of 19 to a beach resort community, you have about, especially on the Northeast coast where we live, where I lived in a beach community, you have about two months and a week to make enough money to sustain yourself for the next year. In that you probably have a business which has taxes, it has real estate, it has employees, it has lots of costs. So you have to cover all of the costs and make enough profit so that you can make it to next summer. Most beach communities, in particular in the 70s, and still true to today, are not made up of huge mega corporations, but small businesses. Someone that owns one or two restaurants, someone who owns a sunglass hut, someone who owns an ice cream parlor. These businesses are not producing super huge amounts of wealth at like an Apple, Microsoft, or Amazon, or even an oil company. No, someone's living a comfortable middle, maybe upper middle class life based upon the money from these businesses. If the summer gets shut off, if summer vacations get canceled, every one of these business owners suffers, every one of their employees suffer, you know, the tax revenue that the town needs to do things like pave roads, pay teachers, pay police officers, that erodes and goes away. So truly, there's an argument to say there is a greater good to be served by keeping the beaches open despite the threat to one or two individuals. And the way that this movie grapples with it and where the mayor gets it wrong and why I think the mayor is wrong, and I think this speaks to the politics of 2020, is that the mayor is willing to bend evidence to get to the conclusion he yeah, wants. Yeah. So he's willing to pressure the medical examiner to say, it's not a shark attack, it's a boat attack. And because he's willing to bend the evidence to say a shark attack is a boat attack, he doesn't allow the public to have an actual conversation about what the greater good is. So there's another world where this movie, where the mayor's like, there's a shark here, everyone let's get together, what should we do? We have a shark. The evidence is irrefutable. There's a shark in these waters. What's the best thing for us to do in a public policy? Should we let everyone come here for 4th of July or should we not, knowing there's a shark in the water? What he has instead is a bad faith argument saying there is no shark in the water. Hence, we don't have to deal with the reality of a shark in the water. Hence, we're able to have everyone come in for 4th of July. This is currently happening with the coronavirus, where people are saying it isn't an actual virus. It isn't actually as deadly as it is. 
the evidence doesn't support any of the conclusions, so we should just pretend like it's not even happening or it's not there. The problem is epistemic, big word. It's about what do we know and how do we know it? And when you are willing to refute evidence to support a conclusion that you want, you don't allow the ability for an actual public policy debate to happen. Since you can't have that debate, you can't conquer the very thing, and then you end up with dead freaking children. Yeah, I mean, you hear this from the mayor's uh, own deputy as they are pressuring the chief to, you know, keep the beaches open after he suspects that it's a shark attack. The mayor's deputy says, we've never had that kind of trouble in these waters. Uh, just saying like, okay, we, we've never had shark attacks before, so we can't have shark attacks now. That kind of thing doesn't happen in a good community like ours. Therefore, we look the other way, it goes away. And that's the kind of time that you can't afford to lose when you're facing a life or death threat. You know, say they close the beaches for two to four weeks. I don't know how long it takes for territoriality, which is just conceived as a theory within this uh, within this movie. I don't know how long it would take for the shark to say, oh, there's nothing here, I'm going to move on. But you would assume that after a couple of weeks of no people in the water, the shark would probably move on to the next beach down the island. Uh, so there's got to be, you know, some answer to this that is, uh, you know, a, a middle path. But the mayor and the community at large are not willing to uh, to take that risk, are not willing to take that middle path, uh, especially when they haven't seen enough, like, in-your-face evidence of the actual threat. And to the mayor's credit, before I saw this movie, I thought that he was just a stone-cold villain the entire time, completely greed-driven, uh, and that he was not necessarily redeemed. Uh, but he does have his come-to-Jesus moment. When he really sees the great white and how it goes after Brody's child and how much danger his child is put in, uh, the mayor is shaken to his very core. He says his own children were on that beach. And he starts to think about the pressure that he put on people. He told people to get in the water so that they could inspire other people to get in the water. And like, this is a real person who's like facing the guilt of what that looks like, which is not necessarily the kind of leadership we're seeing right here in our country with the coronavirus and uh, people taking responsibility for it. So that's a really powerful moment, I think, for the mayor to look that threat in the face and realize how incredibly wrong he was, how much time he wasted, and how many lives he put at risk and how many lives he's responsible for. Yeah, one of the biggest questions that we need to face in battling the pandemic, but also that the characters in Jaws face is, what do we know and how do we know it? There's a shark that has been killed. We have a bunch of fishermen come in with a shark. Was this the end of the threat? Is it over now? And there's a character that says, well, listen, I've measured the mouth of this shark. I've compared it to the bite marks on the other. And this mouth is smaller than the mouth that did this. Sorry, you're wrong. Okay, well, we have a way to, why, why are we wrong? So when someone says, sorry, that's not true, why does the mayor say that that's not true? It's because he wants that to be the shark. He wants the threat to be over. His knowledge system is not coming from a place of just trying to know to know. He's not seeking veracity. He's not seeking the truthfulness 
of whether this is or isn't the shark. He's seeking a, a solution to the problem of closed beaches. Yeah, he's seeking a confirmation bias. And all of his knowledge is around how do I keep the beaches open? And so then when Hooper says, well, we have an easy way to settle this, sharks have slow digestive systems. All we have to do is cut the shark open and we'll know there'll be a little boy in there or there won't. And the mayor's like, no, the optics of doing this would be horrible. It would look bad. So I want the beaches to be open, which means I have to have a dead shark, which means I can't have a body of a little boy washed up here on the harbor. So I'm going to say a conclusion and work backwards. I'm going to start with the end of my premise and find all of the evidence I need to support the premise I want. Anyone who engages in that kind of reasoning ultimately disarms people from the ability to have a conversation about what is true and how to handle problems in the face of that truth. You know, the other um, epistemological problem that Jaws is presaging is the decline of faith and expertise, which if you just look around at how many voices there are on the internet and in the media uh, and how distrustful people are of things that they hear coming from experts uh, and how sometimes people will trust things coming from media outlets that are far from experts or they will uh, shy away from the actual testimony of people who are experts in their fields. Uh, you just have to look that far to know that Jaws was looking at a very real phenomenon. But what's happening in Jaws, I, I think, is a cultural response. And the movie really swiftly and efficiently establishes the culture of Amity Islanders. Like, if you're not born on the island, you're not an islander. Uh, it's Chief Brody's first season, so he doesn't know how things work around here. There is a very tight-knit... Uh, community that rely on each other and that back each other up and support each other, but that also, um, you know, have some uh, deeply rooted false conclusions about like the truth of the world on Amity Island. So that when an expert like Hooper enters the community, he's immediately not trusted. He's immediately pushed out of the photo for the news. He's immediately told not to cut open the shark and they have to do that covertly. They have to do this scientific procedure covertly in the middle of the night uh, in order to like try and save lives in this community. And I think um, that that's anticipating a really interesting relationship uh, that, that we have in the modern world to expertise, especially when it confronts and uh, undermines our conclusions about our safety, about our convenience, and again, about our dominion. You know, another Steven Spielberg movie that will tackle this question later on that he makes is Jurassic Park. We have a story where experts are purposely brought into uh, an environment, into Jurassic Park before it opens to show that it's safe and to show that it is, uh, you know, palatable for the, the greater world and that they can open their doors. And there's this facade of really wanting the, the expert's opinion. But then when the opinion is offered... It's like, ah, actually, we kind of were just doing this as a courtesy. We're going to open this because we're going to make so much money. So there's a very similar argument, I think, happening in Jaws where, like, you bring the expert in, but if they are saying something that's contrary to what you've believed your entire life on this island, which is we don't have sharks, we're a safe community, then that expert is to be 
uh, attacked. Well, the death of expertise that you're saying is also part and parcel with the crisis of how do we know and what do we know it? Yeah. And with people working from a conclusion and finding evidence going backwards, rather than building an empirically rationally based set of knowledge around evidence, fact, reason, and argument. Yeah. So there are, there's a dead shark after a fish has, after a shark has been caught by fishermen and there's a debate whether this is the killer shark eating humans or not. And you have a few different ways that you can confirm that. One way that you can confirm that is, hey, there was a shark attack. There's a dead shark. Problem solved. The shark problem is over. We needed a dead shark. We have a dead shark. The other way to do that is, what evidence do we actually have to confirm that this is or is not the shark? One character argues for an evidence-based approach in Hooper, which is ultimately persuasive to Brody because Brody doesn't care about the politics. He doesn't care. He's just trying to save people from being eaten. And then you have the mayor who says, no, 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 no. I need a dead shark. I have a dead shark. We're fine. Because the mayor is trying to seek the answers that confirm what he already wants to be true. In other words... The mayor is being epistemically disingenuous. He is lying. He's lying to himself. He's not lying in the respect that, you know, he got caught stealing cookies and told his mom, sorry, I didn't actually steal the cookies. But it's an implicit lie because he's refuting evidence for the basis of a conclusion that he already wants. And that's the problem. The problem problem isn't that there's an argument to say, The beaches should be open and there is a shark. There might be an argument for that. The utilitarians would argue for that. They would say, let's sail towards Scylla uh, because we'll only lose a few people, but we'll probably mostly survive. But the problem is that he doesn't allow the debate to happen because he is lying about the evidence. But refusing to look at evidence is a type of dishonesty especially if you know how evidence works. And we are constantly engaged currently in America in bad faith discussions around things that have hard evidence. A virus doesn't get transmitted as easily if you wear a mask. If you put a bunch of children in a school together that's not properly ventilated without masks, the virus will spread. These are things that we have evidence on, These are things that are irrefutable. But if your argument is my freedom is better than virus transmission, if your argument is schools need to be open no matter what, you'll find whatever evidence you can to support that. Someone told me that, you know, if masks work, Americans should line up to vote. And my response to that person was, but they don't have to. They just don't have to. Right. Anyway, we're way over time. Yeah. Um, this has been awesome. I could keep talking about Jaws all day, but on that note, uh, save the U.S. Postal Service. If you have a couple of dollars left and you're not already pledging those to us on Patreon, buy some stamps. Uh, the, the USPS is, of course, under siege right now, and we are in the middle of the ramp-up to a very, very important election in November. So, uh, yeah, buy some stamps if you can to support the USPS. 
Uh, do all your research as it comes to vote by mail and make sure you are registered in time in your state. If you are able to, uh, if you're young, if you're healthy, if you are not a high risk population, consider becoming a poll worker uh, because poll workers are in short supply and it'll be very, very important to make sure that we have a smooth running election in November. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes for a place where you can learn more about becoming a poll worker. Uh, those jobs, as I know, are paid, but they are mostly at this point filled by people who are high risk populations and they will be very, very short staffed in November as they were in the primaries. So definitely consider that. And remember, if someone is saying that something is true about the world, Ask them how they know it, how they got to that truth, scrutinize their methods, and really try to say before something is true, is it actually true? Avoid the easy answers. Avoid the answer that says, of course, the beaches can be open on 4th of July, because there might be someone there who is implicitly lying by ignoring evidence. And until next time, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.